Hi, my name's Tina Waldron. Welcome to the podcast. Every week I look to interview someone that can help you share your faith naturally with the world around you. In 2023, I'm going to be interviewing people in Australia, also a few from overseas, and then there'll be a few weeks that I'll jump on myself and actually do a little bit of recording with some information that may help. If you're looking to do some coaching and evangelism or as a female in ministry or an online course this year in personal evangelism, please check out our website, evangelisminaustralia.com. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to the Win Win Evangelism podcast. My name's Tina Waldron from Evangelism in Australia. And today I'm talking to Sean White from the C3 Church in Hobart. We've got an incredible conversation. We're going to be talking about from ICU to C3 pastor, how Sean White's paramedic past fuels evangelism. Welcome to you, Sean. Great to be here. Really great to be here. It is awesome to have somebody from Hobart, and it's probably the only other city that's as cold as where I am today, Sean. Yeah, I drove in this morning, and there is snow on the mountain, and it's uh, the, the puffer jacket is is in the car, with some, but the sun is shining. But I was, a, I was a Melbourne boy. I grew up in Melbourne, so coming to Hobart wasn't much of a difference, to be honest. <laughs> Fantastic. So the big news is, and what I didn't know about you, I know you as the senior pastor with your wife down there in Hobart, but I did not know that you were involved as an intensive care paramedic. So please tell me, how do you even get into that job? Well, actually, I was in Sydney. We got married uh, in the mid-90s and I was in Sydney in a church and there happened to be a paramedic come and speak at a young adults night. We were a young married couple. This paramedic came and uh, he just pulled me aside afterwards and he said to me, he said, I really feel that you're going to be a paramedic. And I'm like, I, I wasn't one of those kids that grew up, you know, wanting to be a paramedic or a firefighter or a policeman. I was just doing my life and, you know, I was playing basketball semi-professionally. I was just kind of just doing life. And uh, I said, well, how do I get about being a paramedic and he said well there's applications out at the moment and this was mid-90s in New South Wales or in the middle of Sydney and I was application number 2500 because they used to have numbers on the top of the packages and they were taking 25 people and so I've gone in for this day of testing and there's thousands of people in a big room in Sydney and you do this first test then they start calling out names and I'm like oh that's cool I'd only put a couple of you know, a couple of hours on the parking meter anyway. So I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm going back to my life. And they're like, you go through to the next stage. And I'm like, ah, oh. seven stages later and about six hours later, I'm still there. And I got in and it was kind of like, okay, what do I do now? I'm, I'm, I'm going to start my paramedic training in like three weeks time. And so that was my uh, foray into the paramedic world. Incredible. So that kind of makes me ask the question, if you got through seven rounds, there was something that people saw in you then or something that you were writing about that was starting to tick the boxes that you were on the right path and that you were going to, you could be a paramedic. So, so what was it? What was making you get through that other people were not getting through at that stage? If I'm going to be bluntly honest about this, I think it's because I didn't care. Um, I think there was people next to me that I knew were in their seventh time of trying, and they were so frustrated. They were so 
worked up with anxiety around getting in that um, as where I just sort of went in there with this approach. And, and obviously I had my faith with it. I've just gone, God, if this is meant to be, then this will be. And um, yes, yeah, so I think it was just this, this attitude of, of, well, I, I really don't care. And that's, that's a terrible attitude when I say that, but, but you understand I wasn't, I wasn't anxious about it. I was just like, God, if this is meant to be, then it'll be. Yeah, fantastic. And I just wish I could do that with all of my life every day, Sean, because it is the best <laughs> attitude to have. So you get into this paramedic world. Um, you're in there as an intensive care paramedic. So what does that actually mean? And what, what would a events look like, so to speak, when you're called out to be an intensive care paramedic? So so I started, as everyone does, as a probation ambulance officer and uh, my first posting was uh, Western Sydney. For, for your listeners who know Sydney very, very well, I was given the um, Mount Druitt area or the 2770 postcode, which is one of the most challenging areas in, in the Sydney basin. And um, Look, it was. I did. I did a number of years there, and it was an incredible learning experience of life. <laughs> I mean, I'm a young 20 year old guy, uh, newly married. Um, we had a little baby at that stage, and uh, here I am doing night shifts in in some of the most challenging areas of Sydney. And and there was pain there. There was a lot of lot of you know uh, single parent families. There was a lot of brokenness. There was you know. There was obviously violence and and just desperation as well. And I grew up a lot. I, I grew up as a person a lot there in in who I was and and an understanding of caring for people. Um, in that so many of these people were were through maybe no circumstances of their own were in generational brokenness. And so um, I just learned to really love people in a different way. And my skill set was to help them physically. I continued to study then. Um, moved down towards Canberra area where I did my intensive care paramedic training. And then from there, I did a number of years around there. And so really uh, the difference between a, a general duties ambulance officer and an intensive care paramedic is, is I could utilise a lot more skills, use a lot more drugs, did a lot more training. And so you would be called out to the more uh, serious cases or the, the more injured patients or the Ill, more ill patients and uh, be able to help them. Incredible. Amazing. I mean, oh gosh, I, I would freeze, but yes, you have that caring capacity and the skill to do it. Just tell me what was, without giving me all the gory detail, because I do get a little bit lightheaded when I hear these stories, Sean's, but what would be one of the worst situations that you found yourself in? Oh, look, it's always an interesting question, Tina, because um, uh, I ended up spending five years over in the Middle East as well, and that's a whole story we can chat about in a moment um look you, you do you you obviously do a lot of significant car crashes and, and those sort of mass casualty incidents and, and they're always painful um but sometimes the most you know the thing that can affect you most is when you get called and and a, and a dear old lady has fallen down the back steps and hasn't been found for three days and you know it's just it, different things can affect you in different ways or you know uh, you go to a mother who has sadly lost a child to to SIDS or you know something like that. And how do you help a family that is going to be grieving in in such a tragic way, where you know the day before they never experienced this in their life? And so the thing I learned very very quickly is that 
um, as a paramedic is that you're called to a person who's experiencing possibly the worst day of their life. Now, for some people, that is breaking their finger. For others, it is losing a loved one in a most tragic way. And uh, you need to show an empathy with them in that this is their situation, this is their tragedy that they're dealing with and not to become blasé about it, but to just do the very best you can for that person in that period of time. Yeah, so interesting. And what we're trying to do today in this conversation as you listen is I'm trying to get Sean to share his background and then we want to look at how or trying to understand as Sean talks how God has been at work in his life in the past and how that's now impacting what he does as a senior pastor down in Hobart. So, yeah, those skills of empathy, just understanding that these are people in the worst day, is that some of the stuff they cover off in the intensive care training, Sean? You do. Look, it's interesting, Tina, because obviously you learn skills and pharmacology and and, and um you know, learning how to drive fast and all the natural skills that you need as a paramedic. And I I actually ended up working on the helicopter program. Um, so I was jumping out of helicopters. So there's a significant amount of training that is involved in those things there. Um, yet at the heart of all of those things is a person. Uh, the, the, the difference with ambulance to other emergency services is it, you don't get called out for a cup of coffee and a nice time and help an old lady across the road or something like this. You're helping a person in their time of crisis. And so you, you're there to assist a person in whatever that circumstance may be. Maybe it's a bushwalker who is, you know, when there's a helicopter, a bushwalker who has broken their ankle and got lost. And so you've got to meet them where they're at. You've got to meet them in their need. And obviously in some situations that was through foolishness. Other times it was through accidents. Um, but you, you can't judge them. You've just got to go, well, this is the circumstance we're dealing with. How can I help them for this period of time? Mm, gosh, yeah. And what a, what a way to learn that, you know, have some theory, but then get thrown into it. I mean, oh gosh, you have so many pastoral lessons right there without ever being involved in church work. <laughs> Oh, look, my, my very first day on the job, um, as I said, I was in Western Sydney. My very first day on the job, my third job uh, was delivering a baby in a stairwell in in the back of Mount Druitt for a young mum who um, unfortunately at the time had a, had a drug addiction and was, was not in a great state to be delivering a baby. So I'm delivering a baby um, and at the same time my partner's trying to help the mum um, survive what she'd been taking as well, you know, and it was in a dirty stairwell. It was, a, you know, it was a filthy, dilapidated home. And, you know, you think to yourself, well, I don't know. I don't know how this young mum got to this situation. You know, was she grown? Was she, was she raised in a, in a house with two parents and a loving family or was she in generational brokenness? You don't know. And so, so it's easy to judge and say, well, look what you're doing. You're bringing this child into this world um, or to sit there and go, well, I don't know your story. So I'm just going to do the very best I can for you right now. And, and um, hopefully it's a great experience for you. And then we can move on from there. Yeah. Amazing. Incredible. Now, how did you end up in the Middle East? What happened there? Yeah, look, there was it was a bit of a God, God thing. Is that uh, my wife and I had always wanted to travel, and and we didn't think it'd be the Middle East. And we utilised my skills as a as an intensive care paramedic, and ended up in Qatar, um, which is famous now for the World Cup that was held there last year. And I went across there, and I was um, ended up in the role as as clinical director, so looking after the the ambulance program, 
the very short story of it is that I ended up having to treat the emir, who is the king, had to treat his grandson, who had been um, uh, accidentally um, injured in a, in a hunting accident and ended up treating him. And sadly, he passed away. And uh, I had to be able to share with with the king of the country that, that his grandson has passed away, but I've done the very best I can. And post that situation, we developed a program to be able to look after the royal family as well, um, the immediate royal family, and and ensure that they were okay um, from an emergency care point of view. So we did five years over there. It was uh, took me to the most interesting places, and I got to um, treat kings and presidents and, and all sorts of stuff, um, alongside also helping out those who had absolutely nothing. There was many there who live in, in, in absolute poverty and brokenness and hadn't seen families for a long time. And so uh, the, the diversity of what I was able to do there um, certainly helped grow me as a person as well. And, yeah, it was, it was a crazy interesting time, but it was it – was, um, I took my wife, Marilla, and two girls, and they were treated beautifully. It was, it was a great experience in our life. And we got to go to a, an incredible – Pentecostal evangelistic church over there and um, it was just this melting pot of diversity of cultures and peoples about a thousand people and uh, I remember the chief of staff of the of the emir said to me said do you go to that, that establishment on our web street and I'm like yes I do and he said uh, you've told the truth and then handed me photos that they'd taken of me um, standing in the front row with my hands raised in worship and so you just had to, you weren't allowed to evangelize the locals, the Muslims, but we're allowed to celebrate our own faith, which I'm very grateful for. Absolutely. And I'm sure that the way you looked after people from all ends of society, as you're explaining, spoke uh, very loudly. So what an incredible training ground when you don't realize that at some point you're actually going to be the senior pastors at C3 Church in Hobart. My mind just boggles at all of the skills that the Lord was using, you know, but also building um, you into the the person that you are when you you take over this church. So let's talk about that. I want to know how on earth do you go from that? I'm feeling all of the adrenaline of these stories to actually being the senior pastors with Morella. How does that even happen? And then let's talk about what skills, what of all of those things that God built into you, how you're using those today through the church and to reach the community there? Yeah, look, after five years, we felt our time in the Middle East was coming to an end. Um, uh, Morella's uh, grandmother had passed away and my father um, had got unwell and we just realised that we were a long way away and our children were going about to enter into high school and we just kind of felt it was time to come home. We didn't know that that was going to be Tasmania. We had never been to Tasmania. And uh, so I actually, I actually got a very significant job uh, back around the Canberra area. And Morella said, no, I just feel we're going to be in Tasmania. She just felt a calling that we're going to be there. So uh, we kind of we kind of said, well, if that's the case, then God's going to have to have to do his thing. And the very next day, um, I got a an email from the CEO in Tasmania, who, who was an ex-New South Wales guy, and he said, uh, we want to create a position for you to come down and to work in, in Tasmania. And so 
it was like, okay, God, you've opened the door. So we ended up here and um, ended up in C3 Hobart, walked in the doors. And I remember walking in the doors and, and Tina, I remember this day, we, we didn't know any of the churches. We were just trying out churches and walked in the door. And I felt as we walked in the door that God said to me, you're going to hold up the arms of the senior pastor. Now, interestingly, the day we went, they were actually on leave. And so I didn't even know who they were, but that stuck with me. And over the next um, months, couple of months, six months, we just got involved. We got our kids involved in the youth program there. My wife, Morella, started by volunteering in, in the business services team and just helping them establish some stuff with her skill set. I was on the host team and just started running a connect group and did a bit of men's ministry and just helped where I could. And look, it was, there was, it's like everything, you know. My dad always said to me the great quote from Billy Graham, if you find a perfect church, don't go there, you'll spoil it. <laughs> and it certainly wasn't perfect, but it was it was where we just felt was going to be home. And so we served for about three years and then the founding pastors came to Morella and I one day and said, would you consider coming on staff one day a week? And I'm like, I, I was second in charge of ambulance in Tasmania, but I'd I just felt that it would be okay. So I took one day a week leave without pay from ambulance and um, just thought I'd come on and help out the church. And I had the blessing of my CEO. He thought it'd be great for my leadership skills. And uh, little did we know that during that period of time, there would be a transition. And uh, two months later, I would be leading the church. And I used to preach once maybe twice a year if I was lucky. I didn't even know where the photocopier was and then suddenly we were thrust into leading the church. And um, I remember uh, just speaking to someone who was a mentor of mine and I said, I've never been to Bible college. I've, I've, I preach twice a year. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. And he said, um, he said to me, God has given you the greatest apprenticeship of 21 years as a paramedic. Um, just, just use those skills. And so we just set about creating values that we felt were appropriate for the church foundations on which it was a great church but we just really felt that there were some foundations that we could really push into and six years later now we're um you know we're very blessed with an incredible church down here with a couple of campuses unbelievable you know i hear so many of these weird and wonderful stories sean i just think oh there's another book write a book on that that is so interesting <laughs> It's just so interesting how God works, right? Crazy, and and, and it's honestly, it, it was, um, it was a challenging time for the church, and and our founding pastors are still in the church. They're amazing people. Have been incredibly grateful. But any transition is tough, and so there was some tough moments in that. But we just we just felt a peace, there, and it was really a supernatural peace. And obviously what God felt is that the founding pastors had done 20 years and had done an amazing job birthing the church. And now it was, it was a call upon Fumrella and I to, to, to take it to those next steps and to be able to use the skills and the gifts that we had, uh, that were different to the founding pastors. And so, um, I'm just, I just love a God who, who, who uses his people in his way and God is God and we are not. And we have to remember that. Right, and it's such a rich comment that he's God and we are not. We sometimes we you flippantly say that, you know, when you when you're younger, and then as you get older, you just think, oh, okay, that really is a hundred percent truth right there. 
That's so true. And and we've remembered that from the start. And I was kind of like, I remember sitting in an office. Um, I didn't even know where the office was. I was sitting in the church office and it was just like, God, what do you, what are you placing upon us here? Um, because we can run a Sunday service. I'd been running Sunday services for 20 years. Uh, but there was a number of just cultural values that we really felt. And that was um, that we wanted to be a church that was seen to speak life and to speak life into our community, speak life into each other, speak life into situations. Um, the other one is that we felt we were better together. Uh, these were just things that came to us is that, you know, we, we, we realise, and it's obviously very scriptural, is the fact that it cannot just be Sean the man or Morella the woman who's running this church, that we, we need to utilise the gifts and talents that God has given so many people in our church. And probably the third one and the most crucial for us, and I think it came from my paramedic days, is was that the ability to meet people where they're at and walk the journey with them. And so we just really, really committed to doing that. It kind of felt like the hard way of building a church uh, in that we would we would meet people. Um, I, I would openly say, Tina, that we were probably a fairly safe church. We were a very middle-class, white Anglo-Saxon church. Um, six years down the track, we're very much different to that. Uh, in that, in that we have diversity from all walks of life. And I think that's because God placed upon us to meet people where they're at. And so, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of, of single parent families coming to our church and, um, you know, a number of people who have been incarcerated and coming now and just looking for a second chance in life. Um, we, we recently, about three years ago, moved down into the Huon Valley, which is about 30 minutes south of Hobart. Uh, it's a very low socioeconomic area in Tasmania, a lot of generational brokenness. And uh, in the school down there, in the local high school, they're giving us a data point that um, seven out of 10 children come from a single parent family. And that's, you know, this is sort of the area we moved into. And and so we we use that understanding of if we're going to, if we're going to evangelise in this area, we want to meet people where they're at. So we, we, we went down there and we we just meeting these people, you know, and just um, there's brokenness and there's tough. We meet in the local scout hall and uh, we're, we're allowed to walk the journey. We've got a, a beautiful mum that we baptised, uh, water baptised a couple of years ago um, on Mother's Day, actually. She's got three sons. Two of them have done time in jail, and um, but she's had this radical transformation. Now her son's coming as well. And it's just a beautiful story of what God placed on her heart is to meet people where they're at. Yeah. So let me ask you a question about that because, you know, it's so encouraging to hear, oh, well, that type of a person is now attending our church, meaning actually coming into our building, etc. But you're talking about the heart of, so we've <clears throat> encouraged the church to meet people where they're at. So what does the individual, how have you seen the individual congregation member in your church, what has that meant for them? So you've encouraged them to do something if it means go and meet people where they're at to even interface these people that have um, got family members that have been in jail or generational brokenness. What are people doing differently than they weren't doing eight years ago? I think I think they've just got a heart for understanding a person's story, um, is listening to a person's story. And that doesn't have to be a person who's, who's homeless or sleep rough or, or is a single parent. It can be the CEO of a billion-dollar company. And I had the most beautiful uh, image, um, uh, it was probably about a year ago now, uh, on our altar. 
I gave an altar call. Two people came forward. One was a CEO of, well, I didn't know at the time, but it was a CEO of a billion-dollar company, and next to him was a young man who had been a juvenile offender. And they were standing there. They were the only two people on the altar that day. And I just thought that was this incredible image of of what what God's family can be is that He loves all of us. And so we've just we've just encouraged people. If if you're a young mum, then go along to the playgroups in the community wherever it is and listen to their story. You know, you don't have to say come to church. I grew up in the church, Tina, and you know, and, and it was all about is invite people. We need to be able to go out into the streets and show Jesus to these people and not to judge and not to condemn them, but to meet them where they're at. And then what you end up doing is that then they start asking you a question, well, what's different in your life? And then you go, hey, well, I go to church and I do these things. And um, I, I believe, you know, as many people will say, Acts 2, 42, 47 is the blueprint of the church. But I think what we what we fail to see with that is the last part where it says, and, and the Lord will add to his number daily. It's not Sean will add to his the number daily. Um, we've just got to do the other things right, and then the Lord will add to his number daily. Yeah, I love that. That's extraordinary. And I think that every church leader listening, every person, we can do that. We can go and meet people where they're at and kind of release our from the, ourselves from that burden of thinking, oh, we're actually going to chat with people to invite them to church, but to actually hear people and to know their stories. I mean, hats off to you, Sean, because you lived it being a paramedic and so you could you can really talk about that and show people how to do that. I mean, gee, it must have a great tone to the to the service. I almost need to get on a plane and come down there. <laughs> You're most welcome. I, I, and I think I think it is, Tina. It's about understanding that that, um, as I said, look, we have we have great care programs. Our C three care program is great, and we're meeting the needs of those who are who are significantly disadvantaged. Yet yet sometimes these people are sitting right in our church as well. Um, I have a heart for those suffering from mental health illnesses. I did a lot of my postgraduate studies on that. And, you know, there, there is a data point around um, males between, you know, the ages of 35, 50, around that era there, who are eight times more likely to commit suicide than anybody else. And these people sometimes are sitting in our church. You know, there's there's this, there's the parables in, in Luke 15 where Jesus told the story of the lost sheep, the lost son, and the lost coin. The lost coin's like, I don't know, four or five verses. And, and so often there is people sitting in our church who have a lost coin. You see, the lost coin never left the house. It was always in the house. The lady found it in the house. And so often people are lost right in our congregation. And so I think evangelism for me is not only going after those who are on the outside, but also making sure that we're meeting people where they're at, the ones inside the church who who may be lost, the person who comes every week and sits in the same chair but is struggling with mental health issues or parenting or, or whatever this might be, and they just need someone to, to meet them where they're at, hear their story, and say to them, I'm going to get alongside you. I mean, Jesus did that. His whole ministry, he got alongside people and he didn't, he didn't leave him there. He didn't say, okay, keep doing what you're doing. He moved them on, but but he firstly had to meet them where they're at. Yeah, I love this conversation. And I'm sure as you listen today that you're hearing the heart. I can hear it. It's so inspiring, Sean, just your love for people. That background of being that um, in, in the paramedic world is 100% 
coming through. So good to know that Jesus knew what he was doing when he put you there and to bring that culture to the church. It's extraordinary and it's something that we can all do. I love the fact that you you're loving people and inspiring your congregation to authentically love and, and care for people and hear their stories. Not once have I heard you talk to me about, you know, the numbers in the church or anything like that, even though that's important, but it is being really led by this heart and love and compassion to see um, people whole. So really admire what you're doing there. In the show notes today, I'm going to drop all the links to C3 Church in Hobart so that you can stay connected to Sean and Morella and the church there and maybe want to hop on and listen to some of the sermons and messages coming out from that church that could encourage you. So it's c3hobart.org.au. Sean, I feel like we've had a beginning conversation because there's so many more questions, but I've got the heart of what you're saying. So thank you very much for your time. It's been great and and thank you for what you're doing and um to any of our listeners out there, I just really encourage you of just, um, I, I believe that God will place upon you, if you do pray for it, God will place the opportunities before you. It's just about opening our eyes and seeing it. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I trust it's been helpful for you. Don't forget to check out onmissionwithgod.com. Love to see you in the course this year. Have a great week and see you next time. We're here to tell us